When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. May 12, 1800. My dear Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith called upon me a few moments this forenoon and brought me your letter of May 9th. I received the favor in due order. General Marshall is nominated Secretary of State. Mr. Dexter, Secretary of War in lieu of General Marshall promoted. Further I say not, sensations of various kinds will undoubtedly be felt, and many reflections no doubt be cast. Yet so it is. You know the resolution has not been sudden, but mum, you must not know a word but what you see in the public papers. The removals have made me feel sad. I know that honesty, integrity, and industry have marked the Secretary of State's office, and that his removal is not from any doubts upon those heads. Honesty and integrity are equally believed to be unblemished qualities in the Secretary of War. For both the gentlemen, I know the President has a personal regard, and that it hurt every tender feeling of his soul to do what he thought the public service demanded. If you hear any surmises or insinuations to the disadvantage of the gentlemen, then speak for them. I expect it will be attributed to other causes, that some will say that the president has done it to obtain popularity and to secure his election. To such, let it be said that the gentlemen taken from the House and Senate would have personally been more influential where they were than in the stations assigned them but the president is incapable of acting from personal motives merely. I believe I mentioned to you this morning that he is going to Washington as soon as he can get away. Adieu. You had best consign this to the flames. Yours, A.A. This letter from First Lady Abigail Adams to her daughter Nabby about the shakeup happening in the Adams administration in May 1800 reflects the instability that the nation's political landscape was facing going into the upcoming presidential election. We'll get to all that in short order. But first, let me welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Sarah Tanksavala for providing the intro quote for this episode. Sarah is the host of the American History Podcast, which, like this podcast, is a chronological look at American history. And as with this podcast, Sarah strives to tell the complete story. Thus, while you'll learn about Jamestown and Plymouth from her podcast, you'll also learn about the Providence Island Colony and how the English Civil War impacted English colonization of North America. You can find her podcast by going to American History Podcast, all one word, dot net or by doing a search for American History Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Before we get to the trials and tribulations of the Adams Cabinet, let's take a moment to get caught up with developments in Saint-Domingue at the end of the 18th century going into 1800. 
We last left that French colony slash pseudo-independent republic in episode 2.14, with the U.S. and British having concluded a deal with the commander-in-chief of the army of Saint-Domingue, Toussaint Louverture, that would reopen trade with Saint-Domingue, while the U.S. walked a tightrope of establishing greater ties, but not recognizing full independence, and thus not unduly provoking the French. Congress in early 1799 had passed a bill that would come to be known as Toussaint's Clause to allow Adams to reopen trade, and Adams appointed a new U.S. Consul General, Edward Stevens, to go to Saint-Domingue to serve as the official U.S. representative there. The impact on trade in Saint-Domingue was immediate. Within the first year after the agreement, nearly 1,800 vessels would come in and out of Saint-Domingue, but only 15% of those were French. Through this trade, British merchants would provide provisions to Toussaint and his forces, while Americans supplied them with guns and ammunition. These supplies would come at just the right time, as Toussaint began in early 1799 to rally his supporters against André Rigaud, the commander of free-colored forces in the southern part of the island. As you may recall, there were, at the beginning of what is now known as the Haitian Revolution, three main groups, the whites, the free-coloreds, and the enslaved blacks. Rigaud had been able to establish his power base in the South, as it had, prior to the Revolution, been, quote, a bastion for wealthy free coloreds, a group to which Rigaud belonged. And, quote, under his regime, free coloreds had filled posts as officers and had gained access to many of the abandoned properties in the South. There were, therefore, consistent tensions between the free colored and the former slaves, whose lives they governed and whose labor they often controlled. Toussaint, a formerly enslaved leader with a professed vision of a multiracial Saint-Domingue, was able to use Rigaud's favoritism of the free coloreds to attack him in the court of public opinion. However, as noted by historian Laurent Dubois, the differences between the two were not quite as substantial as has at times been portrayed. Quote, both of their regimes were predicated on maintaining former slaves on plantations and on cultivating economic ties with British and U.S. merchants. While free coloreds made up a larger part of the ruling class in the South, their interests were not substantially different from those of the new class of black property owners that had emerged in the north and west of Saint-Domingue. At base, the conflict between Louverture and Rigaud was not driven by differences in racial identity or even differences in ideology or practice. It was a conflict over territorial and political power. Louverture wanted to lead all of Saint-Domingue. And after having won out over the Spanish, the British, the French, and other black generals, Rigaud stood as the last barrier between Toussaint and complete control. Despite this ambition and opportunity, it would actually not be the commander-in-chief that would make the first move. On June 18, 1799, forces under Rigaud's command took the towns of Petit Goave and Grand Goave from Louverture's troops stationed in the area. The conflict, which would come to be known as either the War of Knives or the War of the South, would quickly escalate as revolts by pro-Rigaud partisans would break out in various cities and towns in the north, including Le Cap and Mole Saint-Nicolas. Louverture himself was threatened as the intended target of not one, but two assassination attempts around the same time. Toussaint would act quickly to respond, ordering his troops to, quote, execute conspirators in the north and west without mercy. Then he led troops into the south to confront Rigaud directly. Not only did Toussaint have the numerical advantage, but he also had the support of the United States. 
In mid-August, Toussaint appealed to President Adams for help in quelling this quote-unquote odious revolt that Rigaud had launched, quote, in order to satisfy his pride and ambition. Adams agreed and issued an order to have U.S. naval vessels institute a blockade of the ports in the southern part of Saint-Domingue. As the old year gave way to the new, Louverture's ultimate victory against Rigaud seemed inevitable, and thus he turned to the larger picture. As discussed in episode 2.4, in a peace treaty in 1795, the Spanish had ceded their half of the island of Hispaniola, known then as Santo Domingo, but is now known as the Dominican Republic, to the French. While there were a handful of French officials that had been sent to the eastern side of the island, it was still in all but name only, run by the same Spanish administration that had held power prior to 1795. In early 1800, Toussaint decided that, in addition to wrapping up operations against Rigaud in the south, he should launch an expedition to assert control over Santo Domingo. According to Dubois, quote, he, i.e. Toussaint, claimed that men, women, and children who were French citizens were being kidnapped to Santo Domingo and sold as slaves. However, Dubois questions this rationale and instead felt that this was a move both to prevent any aid getting to Rigaud from that quarter, as well as for Louverture to expand his power base. After assuring the governor of Santo Domingo, quote, that if he surrendered, the property of the residents would be respected, but making no comment on the continuation of slavery, which was, at that point, still allowed on the eastern half of Hispaniola, Toussaint ordered troops across the border in April. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. As Lovature consolidated his control of Hispaniola, President Adams found himself considering how to deal with the ever-increasing partisan animosity in the U.S. As noted by historian Paige Smith, quote, The Sixth Congress, which had opened in a spirit of goodwill and conciliation, soon degenerated into partisan bickering. Beyond just the fact that the Congress was convening on the eve of a presidential election year, the characters entering into the new Congress contributed to this new wave of factionalism, including an individual who would ultimately gain the reputation for being one of the most colorful figures in American political history. Dear friends, it's time for us to meet John Randolph of Roanoke. Randolph was born at Cawson's Plantation near modern-day Richmond, Virginia, in June 1773. He was born into a wealthy planter family and, though he would be well-educated, spending time at both the College of New Jersey, modern-day Princeton University, and Columbia in New York before studying law in Philadelphia, Randolph would never actually practice law. Instead, he would turn his mind towards politics and make his mark by delivering an oration praised by Patrick Henry himself, who, after hearing Randolph speak, was alleged to have said, quote, I haven't seen the little dog, i.e. Randolph, before, since he was at school, but he was a great atheist then. Having gained respect from the great Henry, Randolph earned election to the 6th U.S. Congress shortly after. In his first floor speech on January 10th, Randolph began making a name for himself, though the name would be one of notoriety. 
In his speech of support for a resolution to repeal the act to enlarge the army, Randolph referred to the soldiers of the army as, quote, ragamuffins and, quote, mercenaries. Needless to say, this did not make him many friends in the enlisted ranks. And shortly after, when Randolph went to the theater, he was approached by two officers who, quote, jostled and insulted him. Randolph decided that he should report their behavior to their commander. And by commander, I mean commander-in-chief. That's right. Representative Randolph wrote to none other than John Adams himself, demanding, quote, that a provision commiserate with the evil be made, and which will be calculated to deter others from any further attempts to introduce the reign of terror into our country. Though he asserted that, quote, it would be derogatory to your character, sir, for me to point out the remedy, which it is your province to provide. It doesn't seem that Adams was much impressed with the new young congressman from Virginia, nor was his cabinet. Adams brought the letter to his cabinet's attention, and they all agreed that, quote, the contemptuous language in Randolph's letter required a public censure. Adams referred the matter back to the House of Representatives, and after an investigation, it was decided that, quote, no evidence appeared sufficient to incriminate the officers with a design to insult Mr. Randolph. The House also gave Randolph a rap on the knuckles, asserting that his letter to Adams was, quote, improper and reprehensible. Abigail was even less amused than her husband, writing to William Smith about Randolph and describing him as follows, quote, he is a slender person with an infantine face and a child's voice. If he had not been sent from the Old Dominion as a member of Congress, not a person who should see him could possibly take him for a lad of more than 17 or 18 years of age. He wears his hair like a schoolboy. His whole dress is perfectly democratic and singular. But you see, as a servant of the public, he is equal to any man in office. He has been usually spoken of as Little Johnny. With all this youthful appearance, there is not a man in Congress older, more undaunted when he rises to speak, or less embarrassed. He chatters away like a magpie. Abigail, though admitting that, quote, the lad is not without talents, also warned that, quote, the youth will find that old birds are not caught without chafe. Though this will not be the last time that we talk about Randolph, this should give you some indication as to how future encounters with him will go. The contention would not be confined to the Congress, however. Following Adams's decision to send the peace envoys to Europe in the latter part of 1799, any remaining threads of trust that there was between Adams and certain members of his administration were severed. Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott wrote to former Representative Fisher Ames on December 29, 1799 that, quote, The President's mind is in a state which renders it difficult to determine what prudence and duty require from those about him. He considers Colonel Pickering, Mr. McHenry, and myself as his enemies. His resentments against General Hamilton are excessive. He declares his belief of the existence of a British faction in the United States. Secretary of War James McHenry also noted in the latter part of 1799 that, quote, The President believes, and with reason, that three of the heads of departments have viewed the mission to France as impolitic and unwise. I find that he is particularly displeased with Mr. Pickering and Mr. Walcott, thinking they have encouraged opposition to it, seemingly a little less so with me, and not at all with Mr. Stoddard and the Attorney General, who appear to enjoy his confidence, and yet those he is so displeased with are still received and treated by him with apparent cordiality. 
As we noted in episode 2.17, Pickering was making no secret of his displeasure with Adams, but the president still resisted what would seem to us the obvious move of removing him from office. I hear you asking why, dear listener. Secretary McHenry may provide us with some insight on that. As he wrote in the immediate aftermath of the confrontation in Trenton, quote, whether he, i.e. Adams, will think it expedient to dismiss any or how many of us is a problem. I believe the Attorney General and Secretary of the Navy are of opinion he ought, and would perhaps, if asked, advise to the dismission at least of one. There are, however, powerful personal reasons, especially at this juncture, which forbid it, and it is more than possible, as these chiefly respect the eastern quarter of the Union, they will prevail. But in my view of the subject, the evil does not lay in a change of secretaries, however brought about, as these may be replaced with good and able men, but in the mission, which as far as my information extends, is become an apple of discord to the Federalist, that may so operate upon the ensuing election of president as to put in jeopardy the fruits of all their past labors, by consigning to men devoted to French innovations and demoralizing principles the reins of government. It is this dreaded consequence which afflicts and calls for all the wisdom of the Federalist. While in episode 2.16, I dismissed the assertion of one historian that Adams was factoring the upcoming presidential election into his actions earlier in the year, by the end of 1799, I imagine it was on Adams's mind, as it was the minds of many others. Walcott's letter to Ames quoted earlier was a lengthy report on what he saw as the political landscape and the state of the federal government of the time. In it, he pointed some of the key issues to come, including but not limited to whether the army which had been built up in anticipation of a possible war with France should be disbanded, or whether, as Walcott wrote, quote, the present establishment continued upon condition of suspending further enlistment. The subject is attended with vast difficulties in whatever light it is considered. The generals, and I believe I may say the officers, with their connections and a great proportion of the wisest and best friends of the government, think the existing army ought to be preserved as a permanent establishment. Nothing, however, is more certain than that the army is unpopular, even in the southern states for whose defense it was raised. Who is to defend the army if the southern members oppose the establishment or even support it faintly? General Alexander Hamilton would certainly remain a defender of the army, especially considering that he felt, upon the death of General Washington, that he should ascend to the top post in it. However, Adams would thwart his ambition by leaving the top post vacant. By February 1800, he would see the writing on the wall, especially when Congress called for a halt to enlistments in the new army. And thus, Hamilton wrote that month to an associate that, quote, It is very certain that the military career in this country offers too few inducements, and it is equally certain that my present station in the Army cannot very long continue under the plan which seems to govern. Interestingly, he wrote this in a letter to a correspondent who was asking advice on whether to accept a position as secretary to Hamilton's close associate, William Lawden Smith, who was then serving as U.S. Minister to Portugal. Hamilton would advise him that, quote, you are doubtless aware of the uncertainties which rest on the diplomatic state, and after balancing well, you will make your election. Perfectly assured of my cordial acquiescence in either event, and of my constant wishes for your success. Whether this was in reference to the possibility of Pickering's being removed from office before too long, or of Adams not being favored to win the upcoming election, we have no way of knowing. 
Despite the disorder in the political landscape, President Adams was able to secure a personal triumph in February 1800 as he saw the Senate ratify the treaty with Prussia that his son John Quincy had negotiating. The only sticking point in the process came when a senator from the South asked to see the correspondence between Secretary of State Pickering and Minister Adams, quote, on the grounds that he understood the minister had been critical of the policy of his government. Adams was infuriated when he heard about the Senate resolution asking for the correspondence, but he ultimately complied with the request. Throughout the spring of 1800, the tension within the administration continued. According to Pickering biographer Gerald Clearfield, Adams was locked in a standoff with Pickering, Walcott, and McHenry. The president was concerned about the split that would occur within the Federalist Party if he fired the three cabinet members. At the same time, the trio were digging in their heels, determined not to resign. The situation was untenable, to be sure, but one other factor should be kept in mind. Namely, to date in the narrative, only one other cabinet member had ever been fired and that had been Edmund Randolph back in the Washington administration over allegations of improper, if not treasonous, collusion with France. Did anything that the three had done to date match the level of Randolph's supposed betrayal? Knowing Adams as we do now, though, I imagine you're thinking the same thing that I am, dear listener. Adams is a planner. If he was going to make a move, he didn't want to be hasty about it. If he was going to remove any of these three cabinet members from office, I would be surprised if he wasn't carefully considering who should replace them. It should come as no surprise then that his eyes were ultimately cast towards the House of Representatives, and in particular, the new representative from Virginia, John Marshall. Though he had only been in that house of the legislature for a short time, Marshall had quickly made a name for himself, helping, quote, to find a middle ground between the high Federalists and the more doctrinaire Republicans of the 6th Congress to push through a bill establishing a uniform bankruptcy policy and serving as a vocal defender of Adams's policies from attacks lodged both by the Democratic Republicans and the high Federalists. As noted by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, Marshall, quote, had become the president's spokesman, not by design so much as because he and Adams simply agreed on most issues. The president was often out of step with his own party, and Marshall was too. However, in being out of step, they were also aware of how the public mood was shifting, and though both Adams and Marshall possessed principles and ideologies that were firmly Federalist, they also recognized that sometimes compromise had to carry the day in order to make some progress and live to fight another day rather than to lose everything. Other Federalist leaders, however, could not see that. Speaker of the House Theodore Sedgwick being one. Sedgwick has popped up a few times in our narrative, the last instance being in episode 2.15. Though not quite as open about it as Pickering, existing primary sources show that by 1799, Sedgwick, quote, despised Adams. Though he had moved from the Senate to the House and been elected Speaker of that body, as noted by Sedgwick biographer Richard Welch, quote, it was his, i.e. Sedgwick's, galling lot to experience a steady loss of influence upon the policies of the administration and country. Increasingly concerned with the techniques and tools of politics, he was to witness the party he loved suffer widening division. Paradoxically, Sedgwick's assumption of a position previously associated with relative nonpartisanship was the means of accentuating the partisan temper of his own conduct. As the session went on and started winding down towards its close, Sedgwick wrote to U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King that the session had been, quote, long, tedious, 
and unproductive, and that there was a, quote, feebleness of character among the current batch of representatives. He would target Marshall for specific criticism, writing of him to King as follows, quote, he, Marshall, is a man of a very affectionate disposition, of great simplicity of manners, and honest and honorable in all his conduct. He is attached to pleasure, with convivial habits strongly fixed. He is indolent, therefore, and indisposed to take part in the common business of the house. He has a strong attachment to popularity, but is indisposed to sacrifice to it his integrity. Hence it is that he is disposed on all popular subjects to feel the public pulse, and hence results in decision and an expression of doubt. He is disposed to express great respect from the sovereign people and to quote their opinions as evidence of truth. I know this sounds strange to us at a time where public opinion plays such a key role in modern politics, 2019 as of this recording, but this was increasingly becoming a dividing line between arch-federalists and more moderate federalists. This was only one part of a much larger debate on and trend towards political democratization. Throughout the 18th century, up and down the eastern seaboard, politics have been dominated by a core group of elites bound by ties of wealth and family. As the country began to expand west, however, it was an opportunity for new leaders to emerge on a local, state, and national level. Further, there were more arguments being made in favor of expanding the right of voter suffrage, which would likewise introduce new players to the political landscape. As often happens, though, there was a group within the Federalist faction who resisted the change. As described by historian David Hackett Fisher, these, quote, gentlemen of the old school, as he dubbed them, quote, were increasingly anachronistic. Political conditions in Europe and America were changing rapidly, but the ancient ideals of the old school were not easily abandoned. Though President Adams was rather old school in some of his views, like Washington, he realized that new ideas were needed in foreign policy in order to establish a space for the United States to develop and grow. Much like Washington, though he did understand the need for a strong defense, Adams was not eager to use the nation's military might, but rather wanted to steer a course of neutrality around the traditional European infighting and entangling alliances in order to expand trading options to benefit the nation's economy. However, his ability to steer the nation on what he saw as the best course forward was increasingly threatened. And on the morning of May 3rd, news of an ill portent for Adams' future arrived in Philadelphia. New York had begun voting in state legislative elections in late April, and it was well known that the elections in New York City would be key to control of the state legislature. In any election year, this would be critical, but it was even more so in 1800, as the presidential electors in New York were chosen by the state legislature. Win the legislature, win the electoral votes. On the 3rd, Philadelphia learned that, despite Federalists having swept elections in the city the year prior, the Democratic Republicans had emerged as the victors in the elections in New York City. Historian James Roger Sharp credits Aaron Burr with being critical to turning the state for the Democratic-Republican Party as he recruited well-known names such as former New York Governor George Clinton and General Horatio Gates to stand for election, as well as working to bring together the various factions within the state party. New York and its 12 electoral votes had been critical to Adams winning in 1796, but it looked like they were likely to go for the Democratic-Republican candidate for president in 1800. Ironically, 
Federalists and the New York State Legislature had worked to defeat a bill put forward by Democratic Republicans to have presidential electors chosen by legislative districts rather than by the state legislature. One can imagine they were regretting that choice in May 1800. The Federalists and Congress went into a frenzy and held a caucus the evening of May 3rd, where Speaker of the House Sedgwick and other party leaders unveiled a plan that had been discussed behind closed doors. As in the election of 1796, a Pinckney was being talked about as a potential running mate for Adams. This time, though, instead of Thomas Pinckney, it would be his brother and our old friend, General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. As with many things in the early Republic, it was seen as important to have a geographic balance on the Federalist ticket. However, there was another agenda to pushing support for Pinckney. Adams did not have strong support in the South, and it appeared that he would not be able to count on New York State's electoral votes. For Adams, the options were limited. For Pinckney the Southerner, however, there was the possibility that he might be able to pick up some stray votes from south of the Mason-Dixon line. It must be remembered at this time that the tickets were not linked in the Electoral College vote. Thus, an elector could easily cast a ballot for a Federalist and a Democratic-Republican. Further, there was no distinction between a vote cast for the person an elector wanted for president or vice president. Each elector just cast two ballots into a common pool, and the top vote-getter became president, while the next highest became vice president. This was the reason why Adams ended up with Jefferson as his vice president. What Sedgwick and the leadership proposed, much like Hamilton had worked behind the scenes to do in 1796, was manipulate the votes in Pinckney's favor for him to get the most votes. The plan was to ensure that Federalist electors from the North voted in lockstep for Adams and Pinckney, then either through having Southern Federalist electors cast a vote for Pinckney and not Adams, or convincing Southern Democratic-Republican electors to vote for Jefferson and Pinckney, Pinckney would end up as the winner and become the third president of the United States. This was a risky prospect, but at this point, the arch-Federalists were desperate for the possibility of a win, or, at the very least, to get Adams out of the picture. In what should come as little surprise since it was a rehash of Hamilton's scheme in 1796, General Hamilton wrote to Sedgwick on May 4th that ensuring a solid lock on Federalist support for Adams and Pinckney equally, quote, is the only thing that can possibly save us from the fangs of Jefferson. Now, it's hard to imagine that Adams was not aware of all of this scheming, especially since John Marshall would likely have attended the Congressional Caucus. Marshall was also being propositioned by Sedgwick in the spring of 1800 for his support on another scheme. Basically, the proposal from Sedgwick and Senator James Ross of Pennsylvania was that a law be passed to decide any disputed elections of presidential electors by special committee of 13, which would be made up by six members of the Senate, six members of the House, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Naturally, what was unspoken in this proposal is that there would likely be many more disputed elections if this went through, and thus, the special committee would end up choosing whichever electors they supported. Naturally, the special committee would elect Federalist electors because the swing vote, the Chief Justice, would be a Federalist. The irony that was lost on Sedgwick is that this was very similar to what the Directory did back in France to remain in power as long as it had. Marshall questioned the constitutionality of such a committee and withheld his support long enough for the coalition that Sedgwick had built in the House to support the measure to fall apart. And thus, Sedgwick gave up on the idea. Again, though, given Marshall's strong support for Adams, 
it's hard to believe that he didn't give the president a heads up on what was going on. Thus, by the morning of May 4th, the situation stood as follows. New York's electoral votes were likely going to the Democratic-Republican candidate for president, and the arch-federalists in Congress were plotting to either demote Adams to vice president or get him completely out of the picture. The situation was far from ideal. If he were to have a chance to win another term in office, Adams would have to start building up his support. To do that, he needed advisors and administrators that he could trust to support him and carry out his orders. Three of the members of his cabinet, however, had proven themselves untrustworthy, with Adams suspecting them of colluding with Hamilton to get him out of office. As we have seen, in some cases, they were actively building support against him, Pickering, and had disobeyed direct orders time and again. Again, looking at you, Pickering. Thus, it was painfully obvious to all that the time had come for a change. Who should go, though? I imagine you're thinking that Pickering would be the best candidate to go considering how insubordinate he had been over the years. However, there was one other candidate that was already in a weakened state politically that might just be a good starting point. If you'll remember back in episode 2.11, Hamilton, in an effort to exert control over at the War Department, had started writing to various folks, including Washington, talking about how he felt that James McHenry was unfit to serve as Secretary of War. Then in episode 2.15, McHenry's fellow cabinet member, Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott, jumped on the anti-McHenry bandwagon. Numerous leaders of the Federalist Party had been calling for his removal for a while. By removing McHenry from his cabinet position, Adams would just be abiding by their expressed and well-documented wishes. Besides, with the Army mobilization reversing course, it might be a good time for a change in leadership in the War Department. Then again, rather than a well-orchestrated plan, perhaps Adams' showdown with McHenry on the morning of May 5th was an act of passion. Certainly, from McHenry's report of it, he portrays Adams as out of control. What we know of the encounter is as follows. Adams had requested a meeting with McHenry to discuss an appointment to a vacant position. While McHenry had one candidate in mind, Adams had another. As the appointment was ultimately Adams's to make, McHenry deferred to the president. However, at that point, McHenry claims that Adams started getting worked up and accusing the war secretary of being Hamilton's puppet and convincing Washington to put Hamilton as his second in command and of working to push Hamilton's agenda in his public role and in cabinet discussions. At some point in the meeting, Adams asked for McHenry's resignation. And while McHenry asserted in his account that he defended himself against the accusations and questioned why Adams had not expressed any discontent with his work in his role to date, McHenry sent his resignation to the president the next morning and agreed to stay around until June 1st, by which time he would be able to have department affairs well in order and Adams should have a new candidate in place. Historian Ralph Adams Brown asked the same question that I have about this. If Adams was really acting out of inflamed, irrational passion and fury, why in the world would he agree for McHenry to remain in office another four weeks? It should be noted that McHenry's record of the encounter was written 26 days after the meeting in question, and by that point, plenty of other events had taken place which may have affected how McHenry wanted to portray the encounter in the record. First matters first, though. Adams had to choose a replacement for McHenry. It didn't take him long to send a name to the Senate for confirmation. On May 7th, Adams nominated John Marshall, 
as Secretary of War. Now, he didn't let Marshall know beforehand either that there was a vacancy coming up in the War Department or that he wanted Marshall to fill it. Indeed, considering that there was little in Marshall's background that indicated an interest in running the War Department, it does make one think that he probably should have brought the matter to Marshall's attention before taking the very public step of officially nominating him. With that in mind, it should come as little surprise that the next day, Marshall wrote to Adams that, quote, while I avow the impression made on me by this additional mark of your confidence, an impression which no time will efface, I must pray to you, sir, to withdraw the nomination. He claimed that his, quote, private affairs claim an immediate attention incompatible with public office. And indeed, as pointed out by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, he was at this point in rather of a financial strain as his salary from Congress was barely paying his expenses in Philadelphia, while he still had to figure out how to work out his financial affairs in Virginia. However, taking a cue from President Adams, let's just stick a pin in Marshall's incompatibility for public office for the moment. While Adams was working to get a new Secretary of War in place, Hamilton was scheming in New York on how he might be able to thwart the seemingly guaranteed Democratic-Republican electoral victory in that state. On the same day that Adams sent Marshall's nomination to the Senate, Hamilton wrote to New York Governor John Jay about the problem that the Federalists were facing. He didn't beat around the bush, writing in the second paragraph as follows, quote, The moral certainty, therefore, is that there will be an anti-federal majority in the ensuing legislature, and this very high probability is that this will bring Jefferson into the chief magistracy unless it be prevented by the measure which I shall now submit to your consideration, namely, the immediate calling together of the existing legislature. Once in session, the existing legislature with its Federalist majority could be convinced to pass a law to change the way electors were chosen. In a complete reversal to their prior opposition, the Federalists would support electing the presidential electors by districts, which Hamilton felt would ensure that Adams and Pinckney would get some votes from the Empire State. As I said, Arch-Federalists were in a desperate panic at this point. Jay would get a letter with a similar proposal from Hamilton's father-in-law, former Senator Philip Schuyler, who suggested, quote, that John Marshall was one of those who had recommended the measure. Jay would not respond to Hamilton's proposal except to write on the back of Hamilton's letter that the general, quote, was proposing a measure for party purposes, which I think it would not become me to adopt. Meanwhile, again on the same day, May 7th, Speaker Sedgwick had to report to Hamilton that all Federalists in Congress were not getting in line as they would have liked. In particular, Senator Samuel Dexter of Massachusetts was questioning the Pinckney scheme, asserting that, quote, those who have an opportunity of personal observation may esteem the character of Mr. Adams, as he is viewed by the great majority of Federalists. He is the most popular man in the U.S. and deemed best qualified to perform the duties of president. Dexter's opposition had been unanticipated by Sedgwick, who told Hamilton that he would do all he could to win the good senator over but asked if Hamilton might not be able to open up his own line of communication with Dexter to help in the effort to convince him. This is actually not Dexter's first mention in this podcast. Dexter was one of the many, many names tossed around when Washington was desperately trying to fill cabinet positions back in episode 1.30. However, for those of you who may not remember all the details on Dexter from nearly 30 episodes back, let me give you a refresher. Dexter was born in Boston in 1761 and graduated from Harvard in 1781, the same year as the Battle of Yorktown. 
He went on to study law and began his practice in Ludenburg, Massachusetts, which is in the north-central part of the state. Dexter entered politics and was elected first to the Massachusetts State House of Representatives, then served a term in the U.S. House in the Third Congress, but was defeated for re-election. He had only recently assumed his seat in the Senate in the present Congress. Now, I'm sure you're asking why I'm telling you all this about Samuel Dexter. Well, just stick a pin in that too for the moment. There is a method to my madness, I promise. Okay, so that brings us up to May 9th. Contrary to Marshall's request, Adams had not withdrawn his nomination from consideration by the Senate, and thus, they confirmed him as Secretary of War. Marshall, however, could not offer his objections as he had left Philadelphia bound for Richmond, Virginia. Adams thus had some time to consider his options. At that point, congressmen were earning $6 per day that Congress was in session. Doing some quick calculations, for that session of the 6th Congress, which would ultimately last 163 days, Marshall would earn $978. Turning again to our friends at the Historical Currency Converter for assistance, that is just over $25,000 in 2015 U.S. dollars. If Marshall would accept the position as Secretary of War, the salary in 1799 is listed by historian Ronald White as being $4,500, or just under $179,000 in 2015 U.S. dollars. This was a significant pay boost, but Marshall had already turned down that position due to his financial distress. The reason Marshall was on the way back to Richmond was to try to resuscitate his law practice, which had been neglected when he went to Congress. The law was a sure way to get back on a firm financial footing. As is often done today when a favorite candidate for a position is about to walk away, Adams did have the option to up the offer. Though he couldn't change the salary of the Secretary of War without congressional approval, he did have two other executive offices under his purview that had higher salaries. On May 10th, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering received the following letter from President Adams. Quote, Sir, as I perceive a necessity of introducing a change in the administration of the Office of State, I think it proper to make this communication of it to the present Secretary of State that he may have an opportunity of resigning if he chooses. I should wish the day on which his resignation is to take place to be named by himself. I wish for an answer to this letter on or before Monday morning because the nomination of a successor must be sent to Senate as soon as they sit. Over 200 years later, I can still hear Timothy Pickering's enraged yell at reading this letter. Now, I've seen some historians interpret Adams' decision to ask for Pickering's resignation by letter as a sign of his regret of how poorly his meeting with McHenry had gone and of his not trusting his ability to not lose his temper again. However, as we've already discussed, the details of the meeting with McHenry come from the ousted secretary, so we do have to be cautious to not accept them at face value. Moreover, I have to wonder if it was just a reflection of how little respect he had for Pickering that he delivered the news by letter. Adams had at least dignified McHenry, who, in his official resignation letter, had referred to, quote, my reputation as an officer and a man with an in-person dismissal. Pickering, however, was just given the news by letter. On the other hand, maybe he just didn't want to hear Pickering's arguments about why he should remain in office. No matter the reason why he chose to request Pickering's resignation by letter, Pickering decided not to follow McHenry's example of the graceful exit. 
Instead, he wrote back to Adams saying that he intended to stay on until March 1801 when he expected Adams and the entire administration would be removed from office. Wow, way to rub salt in the wound, Pickering. Real classy. By that point, Adams had had enough, and thus on May 12th, sent him a note that read as follows, quote, Sir, diverse causes and considerations essential to the administration of the government, in my judgment, requiring a change in the Department of State, you are hereby discharged from any further service as Secretary of State. John Adams, President of the United States. It was time to move on. But before we do that, I'd like to take a second to assess Pickering's tenure as Secretary of State. Out of the three men who had served in the post to this date in the narrative, I think that it is quite arguable that Pickering was the least qualified of the three. He hadn't been Washington's first choice, or second choice, or even third choice. Washington had settled for Pickering when he could find no one else to accept the post and Pickering had done nothing prior to or after Adams succeeded Washington to prove his capability to the second president. Instead, as noted by Pickering's own biographer, quote, on crucial questions of policy, he was constantly in opposition to the president, and he never conceived it his obligation to carry out the policies of the president. When argument failed to move Adams, Pickering stooped conspiracy. Harmony within the administration was never anything more than a myth, and cooperation never an ideal of the Secretary of State. Adams had only retained Pickering for the sake of party unity due to the Secretary's connections within the Federalist Party, but when it was clear that would never work to Adams' benefit, he dumped him like a hot potato and didn't look back. For better or worse, Adams was ready to set his own path as president, and we'll explore where that path leads and what it means for John Marshall, Samuel Dexter, and many others in the next episode, which I'm calling A Proper Sense of Their Duty. Special thanks again to Sarah Tanksavala for providing the intro quote for this episode. You can find links to her podcast on the Source Notes page for this episode, which can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Until we meet again, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also touch base via social media where I can be found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, and on Instagram as presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. If you like this show and are listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. It doesn't take long, and that small contribution can mean a great deal in bringing new listeners to the podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.